Think globally, act locally. That phrase was coined in 1915 by Patrick Geddes, who was a Scottish biologist and sociologist, philanthropist, and city planner. Geddes had a vision for vibrant local communities, and he had an idea for how those vibrant, distinctive communities come about. Geddes said that local character is no accident. It is simply an awareness of the big picture and then the ability to act accordingly in any given place. So we all must think globally, but act locally. Since 1915, that idea has been championed by community leaders and politicians and church leaders and business people alike in the hope of creating dynamic local communities around the world. And in the hope that the more aware people are of the world's big needs, the more engaged people will be at the local level, doing the very thing the world needs right where they are. But instead of thinking globally and acting locally, I wonder if our times might be better described as freaking out globally and checking out locally. Our anxiety at being overwhelmed by the world's problems can paralyze us, or worse yet, polarize us. The story I often hear among people these days is the opposite of feeling empowered to do our part in the places where we exert the most influence for good. A lot of people are demoralized or frustrated. A lot of people are trying to rebuild a faith that actually engages the world rather than insulates or isolates from it. A lot of people are trying to find the motivation to do their part for the common good. All the while wondering if anything we do really matters. You might do a little gut check yourself. Do you feel empowered and energized to do your part or is it a little more freak out and check out? Maybe a little more demoralized or immobilized. Well, Jesus had something profound to say to us about this. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a strong case for how a small group of committed servant leaders can have a profound influence. That in fact, this is the only way it happens. It seems pretty clear that this kind of impact is the very thing he's preparing his disciples for. And this transformational influence is essential to the character of the church. Jesus understood himself as part of God's special call to Israel to be a light to the rest of the world, to the end that peace would reign on the earth. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, we hear the end that Jesus had in mind. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we will walk in his paths. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Jesus understood that Israel was blessed by God so that God could bless the whole world. And Jesus accepts that same mission in himself and then passes the baton to the church. To be a follower of Jesus means accepting that role, 
to bring a positive, life-giving influence on those around us. You, Jesus says, are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Tied up in both of those metaphors is the idea of influence. Salt preserves and brings flavor. It enhances the thing that it's added to. Light shines into the darkness. It illuminates. It brightens. Both salt and light have this quality that is really a value to the thing, not itself, but to the thing that it is added to. It, it really doesn't exist for itself. It exists to enhance something else. In fact, if either salt or light loses its distinctive, influential character, then what's even the point? Salt that isn't just isn't salty, it's just white dust. You know, in a technical sense, it's chemically impossible for salt to become unsalty. But it can become diluted. Salt in the ancient world was probably some impure mix of other dusty particles and actual sodium chloride. They didn't get their salt out of the Morton salt shaker. They got it out of the ground or out of the sea. And so it would be totally possible to get salt that was actually more dirt than actual salt. And it would be just as possible for the salt to leach out of the mixture so that what you're left with is not so salty dust. And that salt that's lost its ability to enhance anything is pretty much an exercise in missing the point. In a similar way, light that doesn't shine is a big waste of time. No one lights a lamp and then hides it under a basket, Jesus says. It doesn't make any sense. Instead, you put a, a lamp in the spot where it will provide the most light to the whole room. Or as Jesus takes the metaphor to a fuller conclusion, you put a city on the top of a hill so that just like Isaiah had said, it will serve as a beacon to the whole world and to all the nations that will stream to it. For salt, saltiness is not an option. Shining is simply what light does. And in the same way, followers of Jesus are placed wherever they are to enhance, to influence, to flavor, to bring light, to bring hope, to embody that hope in themselves, but not just for themselves, for those who are around them, for the people, for the systems that they live in proximity to. Jesus said that salt and light are primarily about their influence, and so it is with us. It is primarily about the impact that we have around the people uh, around us. It's really important to understand that the communal nature of this is, is wound up in the metaphor. Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Those yous are plural. He's really saying, y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. Not isolated individuals but a group of people, a community, a people blessed to be a blessing. And in this way, local churches are uniquely capable of bringing about true transformation. Why? Because they are engaged enough in their communities that they can be a part of everything that community is involved in. There isn't a part of our community as the church that doesn't touch some part of our wider community. You know, not only are they used plural in Greek, but they're also emphatic. We would underline them or put them in italics. Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. You and not someone else. 
He's saying you might not think of yourself as a major influencer, but that's where you are wrong. And that's where it breaks down. When we don't realize the power of being distinctive right where we are. In fact, a small minority of distinctive people sprinkled throughout the world, well, that's the mission strategy of Jesus. It's the very thing that changes the world around them. The catch is it never looks big or flashy, and that's the point. It is small and pervasive. And Jesus himself lived this out. We call it the incarnation. The word became flesh. The word was embodied and moved into the neighborhood, John says. This is the simple but profound mission strategy of Jesus. Love plus proximity equals transformation. And the simplicity of that formula is the genius of the Christian movement in that we are sprinkled throughout the world and really we can't be stopped. As someone has said, our only retaliation is love and truth for hatred and lies. In other words, Jesus came and said, you simply cannot make me stop loving you. And it transformed the people around him. And we are a movement of people who engage the world just as Jesus did. What makes us distinctive is not just that we engage the world in love and service, but that we refuse to engage the world any other way. In truth, the only thing that can cause us to lose our influence is for us to lose our distinctiveness. It is salt losing its saltiness or light being diminished in some way. And that seems to be the biggest concern of Jesus. How might that happen? How does it happen? How is it happening? Well, let's look at that in three words. The first of those is that we get discouraged. I see people all the time who have lost faith in humanity or lost faith in God or have lost faith in what they've been told about God or people who have simply been through disheartening circumstances in their lives. And in those times of grief and loss, well, it sort of takes over for a while. And the truth is, if you live long enough, grief and loss are going to find you. Discouragement and disillusionment are part of what it means to be human. And really, when that happens, I think it just isn't helpful to say directly or indirectly, just get over it. The worst thing in the world is to try to provide some theological explanation that will tie up all our questions or our doubts or our grief in a nice bow. A lot of harm is done, actually, when people try to use our theology, theology to shortcut the process of grief and loss. In fact, our theology should show us how Jesus modeled incarnational presence in times of loss. The truth is we can't just get over it, but with Christ, we can get through it. And the church should be a distinctive place, a distinctive place that helps people get through things. In fact, this is what Jesus himself did. He created a local community of people who can then walk alongside one another, a community of healing and hope that helps people who are discouraged find their courage again. And so we listen. We actually care. We allow for questions and doubt. We reject guilt and shame and fear-mongering. We support people who are struggling with faith and 
who are trying to find a deeper uh, and, and build a deeper faith. We create healthy places to ask questions, groups and friendships where we can be vulnerable together and tell our stories. Places where guilt and shame are replaced with healing and wholeness. We get discouraged and that's part of life and part of our distinctiveness in helping us walk through those times in life. We also get diluted, meaning our lives get watered down with way too many things, even too many good things at times. We see people all around us whose routines are completely out of rhythm. I see families, including my own, darting from one place to the other with too much activity and too little actual leisure or family time. Too many people are sideways with money. We buy stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like. You know, we spend an average of two and a half hours a day on social media, but ironically, then we struggle to actually be social. You know, we believe we can do everything. We're told that from childhood. But at the end of the day, in some ways, that attitude means that we don't actually do anything because we're not superhuman. We need healthy rhythms and we need healthier expectations. And here again, a distinctive, healthy community can help us redeem our routines. It actually starts with the rhythm of our week, with the first day of the week, Sunday, dedicated to rest and to worship. And in truth, we have to reclaim that as a people because it is really about learning to trust God with all of our time. You know, a coach of mine said a major shift in his life happened when he began his prayer time, his his morning prayer time. Well, he shifted it to night right before he went to bed. And this was modeled after the Jewish idea that the day actually begins at dusk so that the first task of any given day is to rest, to trust this world and our many concerns into God's hands before we do anything else. This is just one example of how together we can build in rhythms that are sustainable. How we can trust God and trust one another to realize how we were meant to carry one another's burdens in a community of distinctive mutuality and care, the body of Christ, sharing in the work together and the synergy that comes when we are united together. Finally, the end result is that we get disengaged or that we actively disengage. The easiest and most tempting thing to do when we get overwhelmed is to step back. It's a human thing. But Jesus did just the opposite and taught us the true human thing. In response to the world's challenges, Jesus did not step back. He stepped in. Love plus proximity equals transformation. When we feel overwhelmed or stressed or discouraged or frustrated or mad at someone or mad at the institution or mad at the church, our natural response is to pull back. But someone taught me this mantra for disruptive times like the ones we've been in. It's this, stay calm, stay connected, and stay the course. And that phrase, that little mantra is really about mission, stay calm, means lowering our anxiety. And stay connected means going in and leaning into relationships even when there's conflict. And staying the course means that we will 
stop at nothing to embody the love of Christ, we're just not going to stop. You can't make us stop loving you. And the real test of our distinctive influence is here. It's what happens when that influence is tested, when that distinctiveness is tested. Now is not the time to pull back from community or mission or engagement in our community. Just the opposite. When we watch the news, when we find ourselves disillusioned, when we get frustrated, when we point out, gosh, things are not as they, they should be, that is actually the time to be all in, to be more distinctive than ever. And so as we wrap up, let me ask you, what causes you to lose your distinctiveness? Have you been discouraged? Have you been deluded? Have you somehow disengaged? Let me ask you to pray around this question. How can you remain distinctive? How can we remain distinctive in our love for this community? And how might our distinctive influence bring healing and hope, not just to ourselves, but to others through us as we are blessed to be a blessing? In truth, what can stop us from loving people in the name of Jesus? What can make you stop loving people in the name of Christ? Dr. Martin Luther King spoke of being a community of distinctiveness in love that could not be stopped. And as you listen, I would ask you to strengthen your determination to keep our distinctive flavor as the people of Broadway, to be a light of love, a city on a hill. He writes, To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure it. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we shall continue to love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. Hear Jesus speak these words to you today and to us as the people of Broadway. You, not someone else, are the salt of the earth. You, not someone else, are the light of the world. Amen.